Hi, I'm Tyler Yules. Welcome to How the Grades Do It. Welcome back to another episode of How the Grades Do It. Super excited for our conversation today. Um, we have one of the greats, Keith Abramson. He's a VP of Sales at Saipago. Keith, appreciate you jumping on with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Absolutely, man. Well, I'd love to understand like what you've been up to at Saipago. Like, maybe just kind of give us a high level overview of what you're doing there, and then we can kind of just jump into it. Sure. Yeah. Th- this is a fun one. I think those of us that have done this thing more than once in t- or twice tend to find ourselves repeating the same thing over and over again as we build expertise. And yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I did something wrong in a bad life, and I, I just I have some strange masochistic tendency. But I keep on being drawn back to super early stage and having to build it from scratch. And uh, I'm being flip, of course. There, there's a lot of pain, but I personally find it really, really rewarding, and it's the most fun stage in a company life cycle for me, which is that very little exists except drive. And if you choose a company right, market need for your product. So what I love about this stage is that the more you build, the greater the market potential the company becomes. So it's almost this exponential return on effort. And when you get to a bigger company, of course, it's exactly the opposite. It's everyone's fighting for a very, very small piece of the same pie. And increased effort does almost nothing to increase your results. And in this early stage, the harder you fight, the more you win. And that's awesome. The direct correlation between effort and result, that's really cool. Of course, there's a lot of speed bumps along the way in an early stage company, but it's fun. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you you must like the headache um, that comes (laughs) along with it. But I I think you're right, right? Like ultimately, the bigger the company, the harder it is going to be to make an impact, especially in a day-to-day realm of things. And so ultimately coming into a new company uh, can be fun, right? So to just create it from scratch, but it's a ton of work. And so like, I'd love to understand from your perspective, because I see people and I talk to them every day and they say, Hey, I want to go to startup land. Um, but I, you know, ultimately I think most people, I think most people aren't built for startup land, right? They're it not. takes a special kind They're of individual. And so not. I think yeah. it's one of my pet topics. I think what do we exist on as humans? Of course, we're we're built on thousands of years of evolution and yeah. we are pain avoidant. That's our reptile brain. We look for, we do pattern recognition almost subconsciously and it's pattern recognition for our cookie. So we're always yeah. looking for the most efficient way to reward and startups are almost exactly the opposite in that you're actively looking for the failure mode to find success. Failure is not necessarily a bug. That's a feature. You expect that a lot of the things you're going to do are not going to work. And it's actually a good thing. Yeah. There's a lot of startup theory that says you need to have things not work so you truly understand it. Do these things. Try them. Experiment them. You will find the right way that works but you're never actually going to find the right mix for you unless you iterate really, really rapidly. And uh, this motion of constant improvement is almost directly contrary to what our brains want us to do. Our brains are looking to find the groove in the road and stay in it because that's what we like, right? Or we're hardwired that if there is this wolf coming at you, 
The next time you see a wolf, don't run at it. Run the opposite direction. Or better yet, go the way where there are no wolves. And (laughs) what we're doing in startups is looking for the wolves and running at them. And, of course, it's the typical startup analogy, right? Build the plane after it's fallen off the cliff and it's plummeting down to the ground. That's exactly what we're doing. We're attacking the wolf and kind of trying to build a spear while the wolf is two steps in front of us. So that's a startup. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. I think one of the funny parts when you do this for a while is you start to encounter some personality archetypes in people. And I think all of us in sales are basically fundamentally the same archetype we are. I think we're all a little insane. You have to be (laughs) to just run into danger. I think there's a little bit of that adrenaline junkie in all of us in that – yeah, we it's some combination and you could debate it. Do we hate losing more than we love winning? I don't know either or. I certainly – I love winning and I know that's what, what keeps me going. And what is a win? I think the ultimate success that meshes really well with current, modern, up-to-the-minute sales thinking is we have to truly find a way to make everything mutually beneficial. We, we do. Yeah. It's not actually a win unless our client is coming out the other side with a win. So yeah, we're coin fed. There's a reason that we're compensated on commission. It's because this is a deal basis. We can't go out and just talk to people and whatever happens, happens. It's another, I think, element of the successful salesperson is we're influencing the environment around us. And uh, this is something I find myself perennially speaking to my salespeople about is that the old paradigm is order taking, right? And I think order taking to me, I won't diminish PLG or even PLS sales teams. I won't. It's no less challenging. It's just different. But I think one of the big challenges facing sales teams right now is that there are a whole lot of PLG trained or PLS trained salespeople that don't know how to generate a sale from the beginning of mild or limited interest. There are a whole lot of salespeople right now that know how to drive a deal from fruition when a client says, okay, this is pretty cool. I'm shopping for this. I'm going to buy something. Convince me I should do it with you. A whole lot of salespeople can do that incredibly well. But when someone says to you, I'll give you five minutes, but I don't know if I even want what you're selling. PLG salespeople are hardwired to say, yeah, you're not even worth my time. I'm going to go move on. Let me find the buyer that I should spend time with. That's almost the entire basis of HubSpot who all but invented PLG sales when they invented the inbound methodology. It is find the buyer that's going to be worth your time to spend time with, qualify the daylights out of them, and then go engage and spend time and shepherd them through the buying process and align your product to their needs. Cool. That's great. But if they're not looking for the product and you have to generate need from the beginning, that's a lot harder. All of these things roll together in the early stage startup salesperson. The world is basically that deck is stacked so far against you. And I think that core of that personality type is I can go change the world by myself and I can go work with a client. And of course I'm going to get an amazing commission check, but I can go work with a client that may be at a fortune 500 company and I can go engender an opportunity to make someone's life better 
and potentially make some small element of this Fortune 500 behemoth a little bit better off of cold calling somebody, that's awesome. I think you have to love that. I think you have to love that end result. And of course, the key commonality there is making someone's life better. Well, and you're making yeah. your own life better too because you're, sure. you're hitting a number and you're earning some commission. But it's this mutual benefit, I think, is a critical component right now. That yeah, was a know, rant and a half. No, no, and I. Th- but I think it was. I think it was all super valuable. You know, you brought up a really good point that I want to touch back on. Right, every salesperson loves to win. But what if I put it the other way, right? Because we know that we don't win most, like we lose more than we win. So what if I said to you, like, I think salespeople are addicted to rejection. Yeah. Ultimately, then it comes back around to say, like, you you have to be addicted to rejection, like, or addicted to to. getting an answer. Right. Because you you absolutely have to. There's for me, the way I look at that one and the way I like to train on that one is, well, there are two, I think, key points on that. Number one, well, let's say there's three. One is really old and a bit outdated. Every loss gets you closer to a win. It's it's yeah. no less true. Obviously, that presumes that you're doing the right things and you can't just right. go through the motions and it's not going to be automatically a terrible pitch gets you no, 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 yes, no. It's not magic. So I think that's a little that's a little too reductive and it doesn't work really well anymore. But mm-hmm. there's this idea that for me, it's a corollary to professional baseball. It's the only apt corollary. What's an amazing baseball player do? The best of the best of the best. Well, what's, what's an MLB player? They are the 1% of the 1%. They are the best yeah. of the best. They get right. to the MLB. What's the 1% of the 1% of the 1%? They bat 250 or 300, and they're amazing. Sure. Well, sure. let's break that down. What does that actually mean? They are failing seven to eight times out of 10. Failing. Let's imagine a lawyer that loses 70 to 80% 70%. of their cases, a yeah. doctor that can't heal 70 or 80% of their patients. Yeah, 70 or 80% paradigm... of patients die. <laughs> exactly. They'd be that like, yo, paradigm... malpractice. <laughs> exactly. That paradigm does not hold in almost any other profession. So in a certain sense, I agree with you. We are sort of professional failures. and But what we have to do is we have to learn and hone and shape our method continually goes right back to continuous improvement. So what can we get knowing that we're going to lose twice or three times as often as we win? We have to level up with every single fail and say, what could I have done better in order to have increased the probability? There's without going on too, too much of a tangent, let me talk about it and stop me if this goes too in the weeds, but I, it's an yeah. area I'm fascinated with. I like to look at the world in, say, a set of 10 interactions. And in that set of 10 interactions, there's a default percentage from zero to 100 as to how likely that individual is to go forward with us. Our sure. mission is not and cannot be to take everyone to 100. Of course, we're going to try and we're going yeah, to make ultimately, the best effort. Yeah, but I think ultimately if that happened, right, you would have a, you know, a bunch of upset customers ultimately because maybe yeah. the product wasn't the best fit. And so you, that's an amazing point. 100%. Yes. So it's an unreasonable expectation to drive to 100% success. Yeah. But what we are looking to do is a couple of things, which is 
we have to go in with the presumption that we're going to come to one of three conclusions. This is not and will never be a fit for you. Cool. Yep. No problem. You're a zero. You started a zero. You're staying a zero. That's yeah. cool. We'll yeah. part friends. But statistically speaking, if you're calling the right people, that should be a really small percentage. Now, you're sure. going to encounter a lot of friction from almost everybody. Almost nobody, except if you're working for, say, a dominant market leader, if you're working for Salesforce.com, you're going to have name recognition and you can safely assume everybody you're calling either needs you and hasn't bought it yet, or you're going to try and get to switch off of HubSpot to go to you. Maybe it's right. in the opposite direction of late, but you've got yeah. name direction or recognition and there, there's a paradigm. I saw a stat yesterday that was mind-blowing. I think I spotted it on Pavilion. It was the average number of software companies in each category, and I'm going to do it no justice. But it's like the uh, the number of MarTech providers, something like 5,500 different pieces of software competing for the same budget. Security tools, IT security tools, there are about 3,800 different IT security tools. Now, right. software stacks have ballooned ridiculously. IT security, the standard software stack now is about 75 tools, which is mind-blowing unto itself. But you have 3,800 providers competing against a stack of 75. Yeah. That's insane. So your default percentage is close to zero, but it's not zero. You're competing for mindshare. You can't sure. get everyone to 100, but if you perform to the best of your ability every single time and you're constantly honing, what's going to happen is over time, you're going to increase the likelihood. And that's not going to show up daily. It's not going to show up weekly, but it may show up monthly. It may show up quarterly in that that negative 5%, if you know what to do and what to say and you recognize it, that may turn to plus 10 and you may sure. actually convert that negative five one time out of 10 to a, all right, good point. Yeah. We, we can talk. Yeah. That's interesting <clears throat> to me and tracking the meta efficacy of improvement of tactics over time in a large data set is ultra important right now because that's the only way we can pay attention to these things is leading indicators against the big data set. So yeah, back to your original point, we're kind of professional failures and analyzing and pr constantly chipping away and watching game tape, watching game tape, watching game tape. How did I do it? What could I have done differently? Let me figure out. Let me go practice. Let me go do some dry runs. Let me role play. Let me go A-B yeah. test in the real world. Let's see what kind of reactions I got. Let's do some tracking of what happened based on me trying some different techniques and ways to overcome. There's one I was talking about today with my team. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me go back and talk to my team about it. Yeah. What is the weak salesperson here? Cool. They're interested. Oh, they're, they're interested. They're, they're going to go talk to the team. team. I now have a champion. <laughs> what does it actually mean? They're yeah. too polite to tell you you didn't hook them because sure. humans don't like confrontation and they don't want to say, even in this low stakes confrontation, they simply don't want to engage in it. Humans are wired to avoid conflict. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It's really cool. Tell you what, let me go talk to the team. They forgot your name five seconds after they hung up the phone. Right. And so, like, ultimately, I think, to your point, then, then it becomes providing value really early on in the process so that customers or prospects say, hey, like, this was valuable. And exactly. it's not asking for another meeting. It's earning the meeting. 
Yeah, very, very much so. So another analogy, and I'm full of them, right, is we have to look at a couple of assumptions. So they've stepped into our office. Something we said to them has earned the right for them to give us time. So the first thing that we've done even before they've come in is we have to assume that they've said this time, I expect that my time investment is going to give me a return. Yeah. Now, while we've earned that on the surface, we have to go and re-earn that. We have to go substantiate that and say, okay, hey, I know you've stepped into my office. What can we assume? Nobody that's fully healthy goes to a doctor's office. You simply don't. So there's something going on. Our mission is to actually assess. So let's say – let's continue that analogy, right? Yeah. I've got a broken broken pinky toe, right? If I walk into the doctor's office – and this particular doctor was just visited by a pharma rep that well, – this this breaks because they don't get freebies anymore. But let's say it's, <laughs> in, it's an old world and they got football tickets and they got a dinner from this pharma rep. And they do their damnedest to prescribe you a new allergy med. Yeah. That's what a lot of salespeople do, right? Yeah. Sure, you're human. You could use allergy meds. But if this doctor comes in the office and says, hey, great, nice to meet you, awesome. Hey, oh, you're from down the street? Oh, the weather down the street's really, really hot today, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's so hot. I was driving down your street the other day. It was super hot. Oh, <laughs> so cool. Hey, thanks for coming in. So tell you what, um, you can walk away today if this isn't appropriate. Ha, ha, ha. Or in an ideal world, I'll prescribe you some medicine and you'll go take it and you'll be great, right? Awesome. Well, let me tell you all about this medicine I have for you today. Right. You have you have crazy headaches. This is going to solve your headaches. And most people, of course, are non-confrontational. They'll go, yeah, I, I have headaches every so often. Go ahead. Tell me about your headache medicine. Uh, maybe, maybe that could help my toe. I don't know. I guess it could. Maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, tell me about this thing that solves for pain. And at the end, they go, yeah, amazing. So this will get rid of all your headaches. I, I don't know if I really need it, but I guess we could talk about it. I'll think about it. I don't know if I need it right now. Sure. Um, maybe why, why don't you give me a brochure on this, this aspirin and I'll, I'll read it and I'll think about it. And unfortunately that's like 99% of sales interactions out there in the world. We bear a responsibility to actually understand what's going on with this prospect. So we can actually say what I offer will solve for what you are feeling. And we sure. need to do that before we prescribe. And unfortunately PLG has lent itself to such a prescriptive methodology of telling people how to get it done that even still out in the world, discovery is still, it's still not wielded appropriately. And a lot of salespeople prescribe it before they actually understand and diagnose. Yeah. I think, you know, we're seeing that more in, I think you're spot on there, right? Like more often than not, we're seeing sales executives out there selling features and benefits rather than truly understanding the problem. And now that features and benefits aren't great because ultimately I think that's why people end up buying the product, right? Is because of all the features and benefits, but it's not what the features and benefits do. It's what the problems they solve and connecting those features and benefits to those solutions and saying, Hey, these are how they're going to solve your issues is ultimately how you're going to sell your product or service. Um, And so, yeah, a hundred percent. Like, but so let me bring you back this because I think the issue then then becomes discovery, right? And so how do you then um, teach your reps to say like, hey, how do you really dive in and really with a seek to understand mentality, 
um, have a really great conversation and ask the right questions. Yeah. So I think th there's obviously an infinite number of micro motions to build expertise yeah. on. And I think part of that I would categorize in that coaching piece. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll answer one element of saying that coaching right now, it's a mandatory, it is not optional. And too often it falls off because it is laborious. It takes a lot of work from the line manager side to effectively coach. So what do we do? We drop it because we don't have the time to listen to a lot of sales calls. So what we will do is maybe we'll join some calls live, but even still, potentially even worse, what do we do if we're joining calls live? We'll put our sales hat on and just start selling because yeah. we'll try to win the deal. And that's good for the company. That's great. That's excellent. For the rep, are they getting a lot out of that? Maybe or maybe not. There is some, uh, some learning by osmosis, sure, but it's not nearly as valuable as watching what the rep does and actually gaining a real picture of the process of the rep and then breaking down the game tape for them and actually doing some real coaching of, hey, obviously there's a lot of different styles of coaching, but it's a, yeah. hey, how do you think that went? What is the essence of one flavor of coaching? Assuming they know actually the right answer and leading them to it and through the, that path of analysis that says, you're right, that, that was a stupid question. I shouldn't have asked that. I knew the answer. Yeah. Or, hey, you spent five minutes talking about the weather and hockey. Did this advance your deal? Why? Yeah, well, he's a huge hockey fan, so am I cool. Is he looking to make a friend that he's going to a hockey game with? <laughs> no, right? And yeah. yeah, people buy from people they like. It's true. But on that hierarchy of needs, that's table stakes. And it's not advancing a deal. It's just that's what's required to even open the door. So yeah. that should be some governing principle that decides for time allocation that you're investing in. Again, people generally... Let's say you have a 20-minute call. You can generally spend 10 minutes of that talking about nonsense, and your prospect will tolerate that up to a point because what yeah. are we as salespeople? We're gregarious. Generally, we're likable. We like people. We're outgoing. Yeah. We're pleasant people to engage with, and oftentimes that's enough to start a conversation. But guess what? No value is accruing. So if you go to – Wow, this is going to be a way out there analogy, right? Go, go to Fight Club and Chuck Palahniuk, right? He calls them single-serving friendships. We're mm -hmm. not trying to make single-serving friendships because there's nothing to them. Like there, you have some conversation and there's no weight. It's empty. It goes away. It's disposable. Sure. We can't be disposable. We have to actually create impetus and inertia. It used to drive me nuts when I was young in my sales career and I still see it. It's this stereotypical line because it's been so spread throughout discourse about sales. Create value, create value, create value. As a young sales guy, what do you even mean create value? Stop telling me I didn't create value. Give me some specific direction as to what that actually means. Because yeah, tell I don't me think how to create really their know. value. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. just telling me to do something. But ultimately, I think I need maybe a little bit more help on how do you want me to create value here? Exactly. So what is, what's the essence of that formula? And uh, so going back to the question, how do we do that? We have to coach. So we have to break down game tape and we have to spend that time investment 
showing the rep the right way to do things tactically speaking. Look, my personal opinion is a lot is incumbent upon us that are in early stage companies. We have to do everything. We have to build the training library. We have to train. We have to coach. We have to mentor. we We have to do all of it. Obviously the more mature companies can start to add in rev ops and coaches and, and start to break the functions out so we can focus on different elements specifically. And in early stage, we're GPs, right? We have to have a little bit of knowledge about everything. There is nothing we can't know. Yeah. You know, you talk about reviewing calls with people and I think that's like crucial. You have to do it. Um, but more importantly than what they said, I think it's important to understand what they were thinking in that moment in the call. Yeah, it's a great point. Right, because maybe the only way that you're going to change their thought process and change for the better, um, you know, will they be able to change? Okay, this is how I should be thinking. And so one thing that I always used to do with, with um, that my team found fun was I say, send me a call or send me a meeting and we'll review it together. I won't listen to it beforehand, but what I will do is through per- certain parts of the call, I'll stop it and say, hey, this is where my head's at, where this conversation mm-hmm. has been this far. Yeah. This is right. what I would have said here, right? So then I'm saying, and this is why I would have said this. So they understand my mentality and why, where my head's going. And I was like, all right, I want to see what, obviously what you said here. Yep. And so it was fun to see, hey, well, what were you thinking when you said that? Rather than, hey, this is what my mentality and where I would have maybe asked the next question. And yep. that was the aha moment for them to say, okay, now I get it. Right. Because it wasn't necessarily saying, hey, this is what I this is. Hey, this is what you should ask here. More importantly, why you should ask that here and why it was more important to ask this here rather than in this point. And that obviously led a whole another type of conversation. Yeah. What what were you thinking? And not with the negative connotation of that. It's just you tell me what what were you actually thinking about? Absolutely. Right. Because I think so often or not. Right. Especially as we think about discovery. We, we know as a, as a salesperson what we need to get from that call. And so what we don't want the prospect to feel like is we're checking boxes off um, and asking these questions that don't necessarily jive or make sense. What, they, what we want them to feel like is we're having yep. a true conversation in a consultative way where we're leading the conversation where we want it to go, obviously, but it, there's value through the entire thing and it's in a seek to understand mentality. And there's, there's one really important conclusion that I always make, and I touched on it a little bit before, but it is yeah. you are aiming to understand so you can make a recommendation and yeah. you should not pitch anything until you actually can put weight behind a recommendation. I recommend that you buy my product because here's where you are now <clears throat> and here's where you will be once you have it. And you need to do enough discovery that enables you to make the recommendation. It's not always possible. On an inbound, you can't always – there's not always tolerance. And my thinking changed on that. I think it's had to evolve of late. I used to be really, really staunch on that and say, no, you need to get everything you need. Otherwise, don't proceed. It's not worth anybody's time. Inbound has fully removed that, and there are buyers that will not tolerate discovery. Uh, it's and, your gamble. Look, if they're perfect ICP and there is a real deal here, 
you're only investing half an hour to 45 minutes. You can yeah. invest. And there are tactics, of course, and ways that you can dive into the products and then reintroduce discovery before each feature. I think that's modern best practice on the way yeah. to do it. But yeah, some buyers aren't going to tolerate it. They're going to say, no, I just, I came for the demo. That's why I signed up. I need to see your product. Cool. Hey, all right, let's dive in. Let me show you a couple of things. Okay, if I ask you a couple of questions before I show it so I can spend your time, well, yeah, go ahead. You can ask me a question. I'm going to see the product. We're cool. That's what I need. What I don't want to do, Mr. Salesperson, is spend 50 minutes answering your bant questions, and then I get nothing, and I can't go to my boss who asked me to evaluate products and tell him where what we should spend money on. Yeah, I think you're spot on here, right? And so, you know, it's funny, right, because the – you know, there's stats out from Forrester that says prospects have done the research before they even reach out and buy. Like they, yeah. you know, you're not going to a car dealership and buying a car. Um, it's not where you just showed up and you're like, oh, I'm going to test drive a car. No, you, you, you read all the reviews. You know what kind of car you want to test drive. You know the model and maybe down but, to the spec that you but, want. But so <laughs> I will I'll push back on you a little on this one. Push Insofar back. as I agree. Push it yeah. back. Yeah. But – if you knew what to do, wouldn't you have just emailed the internet sales manager and bought the car? You don't actually know exactly what you're going to do. You didn't tell that salesperson, I'm ready to sign because they would have just handed you an agreement. You're poking okay, around, you're looking at, yeah, you're poking around, you're looking at things. Now, however, what does the weak salesperson do? Hey, let me know if you have any questions. Hey, do you have any questions? And what are you going to say? Of course, nope, just looking. No, no, nope, all good. Nope, just looking. I'll, I'll let you know yep. if I need you. Yet you didn't come in. You came in with intent, right? That's that's an old common thing. Nobody goes to kick tires unless you're thinking about buying a car. So kicking tires isn't necessarily a worst thing in the world. But it's that salesperson's job to find a way to help educate you. Why do people dislike salespeople? Generally speaking, is because it's hardwired in our brains that we think salespeople have mystical powers that can convince us to do things we weren't otherwise inclined to do. And to some degree, they're not wrong because we are trained in the art of change management and the art of shifting perception. That's what sure. we do. But we have to use our powers for good. But again, we influence the world around us. That person may or may not buy a car. Can you leave that to chance? No, they're in the no. car dealership. You're still paid by the car dealership. Your job is to influence them to buy your car. Now, right. the best salespeople do that in a way that is not greasy or gross. We're not using old school, combative, just despicable sales technique, right? Sure. We're going to actually understand what they're looking for, what they have now. Hey, so you drop, drove up in a vet. What are you looking to get out of that thing? It's awesome. It just came out a year ago. Did you just pick that thing up? Um, as opposed to, hey, uh, you got any questions? No, no. I'm good. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. oh, yeah, I, re I really don't want to get rid of the vet, but, you know, we're, we're having a kid. I uh, just found out, and I, I need to get something bigger. Well, do you know you can get the same performance in a four-door now? Have you thought about electrics? Because uh, yeah. look, that, that Tycon four-door turbo right over there, it's faster than your vet. And you've got room for a baby seat in the back. That That's selling. That That is yeah. steering and influencing and, and driving. Um, but 
we have to create the value and understand the need. And of course, that was pocket sized and not full, but you've got to actually understand all of it to make a recommendation to the buyer that you actually have weight behind. You're not doing it in this kind of desultory or kind of automatic way that just because they're in front of you, you're pitching your product. That doesn't work. Nobody's buying yeah. based on that. They're buying based on a recommendation that a human is making that they want. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. We all we like to be told what to do. Humans inherently respond to both expertise and authority. We're hardwired for it. So when someone has expertise that we trust and has authority in a subject, we want to take that in. Otherwise, we would have made the decision ourselves if we had all of our own expertise and authority. I would have just said, I'm not interacting with the salesperson because I know more than they do. Mr. Internet Sales Manager, what's the best price you're going to do on a Taycan Turbo for me? And I'm going to buy from the guy that gives me the best price. I don't need anything. No, yeah. I walked into a dealership. Yeah, I think, right, like, but I think it's similar even when companies are, or people are going to buy software from a company, right? They, maybe they've done 70% of the research on competitors, on the market. Yep. They maybe know what's going on, right? So when they, maybe they reach out or you reached out you maybe you caught them at a good time and let's assume you caught them at a good time and right they just want to see a demo um i would say five years five years ago people weren't doing as much research like and 10 years ago there wasn't the information out there to be able to have and now that yeah. all the information's out there and everything's on the website like how do we then because we we as salespeople need to take someone through a really thoughtful discovery to really understand how we're going to be able to impact and and solution sell Right. Because ultimately, if your product's not a fit, we're not going to sell it anyways. Yeah. Yep. And so well, we shouldn't. I'll point, put it that way. A lot of people still. Attempt there you to. go. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you shouldn't for sure. Because then ultimately that leads to a bad customer, which leads to bad reviews. And right. I think it's all about finding win wins, which then ultimately gives. Um, it's just a better fit long for everyone yep. long term. Right. Like you're thought of as a better salesperson and solution. Um, the company has better reviews and, and ultimately all that works. But to that point, right? Like I would say to you, the discovery process or maybe the process of how we've been selling hasn't necessarily changed for that. And so what would you say there? So I still believe it's incumbent upon us to find out the requirements. Inbound is dramatically different than outbound, of course. Absolutely, so absolutely. Inbound, we can actually ask questions much more overtly because they're already engaged in this buying cycle. They've done the research. Right. What do they want? What do they like? What do they need? Now, it does not preclude pr pushing back, and that's my input here. Why yeah. would we take what they want as sacrosanct? Because if they truly believed it, again, they would have pushed a buy it now button somewhere. They've gone to 70%. They need education on the 30%. They're not authorities. We sell what we sell every day. They buy it once and then go use it for years. So we have expertise and it's our job to actually build a case with expertise based on their unique needs and challenge them and push back. All's the better if we have access to kind of this collective unconsciousness that they don't. What is that? That is what their peers are doing out in the world. There is no line that stops people in their tracks more than let me tell you what our clients are saying. Everybody yeah. immediately perks up, immediately. Because I can't go to my competitor 
an immediate competitor. I can't ring them and say, hey, do me a favor. Um, how'd you build your sales org? And uh, <laughs> what's your comp plan for the salespeople? Sure. And how are they achieving that? And what are your targets for next year? How much of an increase do you see? What do you think the buyers are going to be spending their money on next year? I don't yeah. have that. But salespeople are actually conduit to a lot of that information. In many ways, we are. I love the word consultative, even though it's dated, because for yeah. me, the root of that is consulting for your clients. That's what we're doing. What do consultants do? With Generally speaking, consultants are experts on synthesizing the zeitgeist into a recommendation. They're not necessarily steering people. They are acting active, actively involved in what the best of the best are doing. And they're coalescing that into a recommendation that says, here's our opinion based on what the market is doing. Here's yeah. what this means. Here's what you need to be aware of. There's a reason Gartner charges what they charge to have a relationship with them and tap into that level of knowledge. It's because we can't get it ourselves. Sure. What are we doing as salespeople? We're giving it away as a precursor to you buying our product. In many ways, that is almost even more valuable in some ways than the product itself. It's that pain analysis recommendation vis-a-vis -vis what others like you that are the best of the best are doing. That's incredibly valuable. And if salespeople ever approach me with that, I find it compelling because it's, yeah, tell me what my peers are doing. You're playing on FUD. You're playing on helping me be my best. And yeah. I don't necessarily we, – we all have some form of imposter syndrome. Even CEOs have imposter syndrome every day. If I can help them through that, that's really valuable. So you're saying, hey, like put the – find value on the in, on the, um, on the invaluable, right? Like be – I think what you're trying to say is like, be you, right? Like be consultative, um, really still seek to understand. And ultimately, um, form an opinion, actually yeah, have go. an opinion. This buyer needs what I sell. And the more you can base that on reality and then make a recommendation based on the analysis you've done, however right. succinct, the better the chance you have. So there are a lot of people – this isn't necessarily fully original thought, right? There are a lot of people talking about concepts like this. Yeah. Yet it boggles my mind that you have just so many salespeople, even generationally, don't do any of this. They really think it's their benefit to be a living brochure, and it boggles my mind. And so I think that's a great point, right? Like in trying to change the way that people change um, think about salespeople, right? Like I think that comes top down, right? And so that's like from a leadership level. And so how do we then coach leaders now to have their salespeople really take people through a thoughtful process um, that focuses on the prospect and not so much on their company? Yeah, it, it's a great point. I think it has to get baked in to our stages, um, which have mm. traditionally been one of two things. They've traditionally been likelihood to close and you get forecasting baked into sales stages yeah. or it's just been about collecting the BANT information and just evolving that as you move along a deal. Is there any value in either of those things to your prospect? Literally zero. They yeah. do not care about any of these things insofar as that's just information that you can use to decide – 
What's the probability of this closing? How much time and energy am I going to put in? And when can I tell my superiors that it's going to close so they can make decisions about the business based on what's coming next quarter or even the quarter after that? What does that mean to your prospect? Zero. They could yeah. not care less. So I think it's our responsibility to bake into our sales stages value that we are providing and need to provide to earn the right to go to the next stage. Yeah. Okay. I mean, definitely an interesting um, perspective and I love it. Like, I, I think it's spot on. Um, I mean, like, how do you think? A little, little challenging to implement in the real world. Of yeah. Everything that I spoke about previously, but I, I think <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be polar or binary. I think as leaders, we can start to introduce some of these elements without freaking out CEOs and saying, I'm not worried about forecasting. I'm not worried about band. Don't worry about it. I'm just helping my customers. That doesn't fly. But the more we can actually merge the two and say, because I'm truly helping and generating value and making a good recommendation, I've earned the right to get the information that I do need as a salesperson, that especially if you're dealing with a more mature line of business that buys a lot of software, they know the information we need. They know exactly how the game is played. But if we earn the right, they'll actually be much more willing to give it to us. I think all of us have interacted with the buyer, and it's not just people selling to salespeople, even though that's exploded. But we've all had the buyer yeah. that said, all right, let, let me give you your BANT info that I know you need. I, I've gotten that many a time. People will say, yeah, I, I know what you need from me right now. Let me give it to you. Here's, here's my timeline. Here's the people that will be involved. Here's the champion. Here's the guy who actually holds the purse strings because they've been asked so many times, but that should be a gift to us. Not the end point that that's a freebie. Now we have to almost earn that retroactively by leveling them up, teaching them something, pushing back on their presumptions, driving them to an end goal. That's going to help them achieve what they need to rather than simply serving up answers to feature function questions, or even worse, just going through a litany of feature function that we're throwing against the wall at them. Yeah. I mean, so is it, it at that point though, is it, is it in the best interest at that point for the salesperson to say, look, I know you want to see a demo of the product, but it's actually a, an injustice to you to do that. And so it's hard. It, it's hard. It, it's a, it is right. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's a right? good question. ultimately I think, and and I think we could say this uh, to to anybody and say, look, it is an injustice for me to do this because of this reason. I don't know anything about your company yet, and I know what my the value that my company provides. But ultimately, I want to make sure this is a good fit for you and us later down the road. And so, I'd rather spend, you know, ten to fifteen minutes just to just get a better understanding of your of your value of what what you're trying to accomplish. Like, what are you yep. looking to accomplish here? And that way I can show you a demo that's going to actually make sense. And then I think sometimes you'll maybe get a conversation of, Hey, I don't really give two fucks. You're going to show me this demo or I'm not going to schedule another meeting or you get some people like, all right, let's chat for a few minutes. And then you show me something meaningful. I think it's one of those, you've got to play by ear. And I think one thing we have to have developed or we've had to have coach in salespeople is some situational awareness that says, who do I have on the other end of the phone? Yeah. If this is, I mean, if this is, there's so much calculus that goes into that, right? How important is this logo to me? How important is this at bat? 
Is this critical? Is this a little nothing? Is this one that I don't want to risk at all? How comfortable am I introducing some element of variability here? If this guy says, no, I need the demo, am I willing to die on the hill? And if I'm not willing to die on the hill, you know what? Let's just show him the demo and let me back into it. Let me substantiate some value for him first. But I I truly believe – let me – I'll answer the question slightly differently. I actually believe that we should never show a demonstration unless it's an illustration of a problem we've already worked through and we're just illustrating how the problem is solved and that it's feasible. We're not attempting to sell through a demo. If you're attempting to sell through a demo, you're not going to win. The demo is merely substantiation that what you've described is real. That's it. And now, look, I – I can say that in a bubble, but if we, if our number one potential client comes in today and says, I need to see a demo and we say, well, no, just show me your demo. Look, we're probably going to demo, frankly. And I think we need to, I don't think it's a hill that we should necessarily really die on, but we have to find a way to work back in because for the majority of us selling, no matter how amazing our products are, and we have to, of course, deeply and passionately believe that our products are amazing and solve a problem in a unique way and help our buyers, that's not really the root driver of the sale. It's the connection and interface between the product itself and the problem it solves for. And if we can't actually get to that problem, then we, we ourselves have a problem. Look, there's a whole category out there of PLG. Yeah where the entire basis of PLG is they've done that themselves. None of that work is required. So if you're in a PLG company, this does not apply to you. Don't worry about it. You do (laughs) you and it's awesome and you're, you're great. And you continue finding this, the sales opportunities that are late stage and shepherding them to close. Awesome. But I also really believe that is not the normal motion anymore. I think it was really, really prevalent for a while and I think buyers that are going to engage PLG are a different animal, and that is slowly, slowly falling off. And we're walking into this new world of maybe the hybrid of product-led sales um, and or, of course, most of us early stage are generally sales-led out of the gate. Yeah. But how do we earn the right to be sales-led? We have to teach and we have to show to the end of forming an opinion that says, my recommendation is you buy this because you're like this now, you will be better after, and here's why. Yeah, That is the simple hypothesis that we have to be able to solve for. No, I love that. And ultimately, I think if you get that wrong, then then it's like, hey, then there's a big miss, right? It just wasn't great discovery um, ultimately, right? But if yeah. you can connect, hey, this is what my product's going to do. This is how it's going to solve a problem, and this is – um, the ROI, right? If, if it, cause it's either a time of a savings of time, money, or, you know, there's an immense amount of value that they're going to gain from yeah, it, right? Which money, is revenue. Right? What is right, time? Yeah. Time is money. money. So yeah. really it so is, all, it is all, all money. This yeah. has to actually save you money. And it has to be an equation that I can help you create that says the pain of change plus the hard dollar cost of the software is still significantly less than the pain and money and time all aggregated together of your current process. It's yeah. incumbent upon me. If we make a buyer do that work themselves, 
we're leaving it to chance and they either will or they won't, or maybe they'll see it or maybe they won't. But that's where we have to actually be experts on. And we have to come to that synthesis really, really quickly and be able to invest our time where that equation is a net positive. So we're actually making a recommendation we believe in as opposed to we'll go back to our sales guy that has that that Corvette, the new C8, right, sitting yeah. in the showroom. Is he trying to sell that Corvette to every single person that walks in or he is he actually finding the person, right? Um, and a lot of salespeople are going to – they may very well do that, right, because yeah. there's high margin on it. And uh, there's dealer markup, right? There's 15K, just pure profit on top of each one of those. Sure. Are a lot of people going to try to sell it? Sure, to, to everybody. But that's not the motion. That, that's just a waste of effort, and that's going to alienate your potential buyer. And even those that want to dream about it and may very well even engage you on it, are probably going to end up buying the car from the person that actually understood their, their, understands their real need and makes a business case and makes the recommendation for exactly what they want that's going to solve for the majority of the boxes to get it done. Look, if yeah. you're only ticking one box, which is fun and awesome and sexy, uh, cool, that may not be the number one for this buyer. You can't assume that it actually is. And yet when you go to SaaS, that's what so many salespeople do. I assume that the sexy part of what I sell is what you're looking for. And I'm going to tout the inherent virtue of what I sell is sexy. And you're going to buy because the object is awesome. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're spot on, man. And this has been great. <clears throat> Keith, how do you want people to remember you when you leave this life? <laughs> that's, I think that's probably an easy answer for me. Uh, left the place a little bit better than he found it. Right? So I, I think that's incumbent upon us to level up the world around us and we'll accrue the benefits almost automatically of yeah. that. So look, that that's not a selfless motion. It's not. And I think that's what we have to recognize as salespeople is it's okay to be driven for yourself, but it, it goes both ways. If we create value first for others, we will also accrue the value. It's not charity. Those that want to do charity should do charity. And that's great. And it's noble yeah. and it's amazing. We're not doing charity work, but the ends of achieving a really profitable capital based relationship in sales are driving value first and then accruing the benefit to themselves. And for those of us in sales leadership that have chosen that profession as a career, the exact same analogy applies. What do we have to do? Level up those around us and we'll accrue the benefit. Yeah, man, this has been fun, Keith. Um, where can people connect with you after this if, if they want to? I would assume LinkedIn is probably a really good spot. Absolutely. Of course, LinkedIn is my social. So LinkedIn, Keith Abramson, VP of Sales, Saipago. If you are looking to automate your compliance and uh, you're an IT team that's doing things manually on that front. Don't hesitate to get in touch with me. And my salespeople will go discover if there's value in Saipago for you. But you can meet me there on LinkedIn. I love that, Keith, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I know a ton of people are going to get a lot out of this. And uh, Awesome. Man, this is another episode of How the Grades Do It.